Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Good morning. Happy Mardi Gras or Punchki Day to those who celebrate. Uh, today, we are pleased to host another episode of our Seat at the Sitting series. Even though it's the 21st and oral arguments uh, began this morning, this webinar is designed to preview the February, February Supreme Court docket in 90 minutes or less. I'm Nate Kazmarek, Vice President and Director of the Practice Groups. Per, per usual, please note that the Federal Society doesn't take any positions and all opinions uh, belong to our guests. Today, we're delighted to have Rob Driscoll moderate our conversation. Rob, how are you? Doing great this morning, Nate, thank you. Very good. Uh, uh, we are uh, looking forward to uh, today's cases and our presenters, and we're glad Rob could join us. Robert S. Driscoll is a shareholder in Reinhardt Law Firm's Labor and Employment Practice. He previously clerked for uh, the Honorable uh, Diane Sykes of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in Milwaukee. His law degree is from Notre Dame Law School. He holds a Master of Politics from the University of Dallas, and his undergrad was at Hillsdale College. Go Chargers! Uh, full bios for Rob and all our guests are available on our website and the promo emails you received for today's program. In a moment, I will hand it off to Rob. Once the group has reviewed the next cases, we'll go to audience Q&A. So audience, please prepare your questions for our panel. Questions can be submitted via the Zoom Q&A function. We'll answer as many of them as we can. Uh, with that, uh, welcome. Uh, Rob, the floor is yours. Well, thank you so much, Nate. Really appreciate the invitation here and the opportunity to hear from our, our speakers kind of firsthand in, in person. Um, I've been involved with the Federal Society since law school. I'm glad to continue that association. Um, with that being said, you're not here to see me. You're here to see our, our panelists. And we're going to start with a good one. Uh, and they're all good, but we'll start with uh, uh, Attorney John Richter, who is a partner at King & Spaulding, where he defends companies and individuals under investigation by the federal government. Uh, attorney Richter previously served as the U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Oklahoma and is the Assistant Attorney General uh, in, in the Department of Justice and the head of the Criminal Division. And uh, Attorney Richter, you're here to speak to us today about Dubin versus the United States. So please, the floor is yours. Well, great. Thank you, Rob, and thanks uh, for having me here today. So Dubin versus the United States, uh, which is pending before the court and, and will be heard, uh, argument will be on the 27th, uh, concerns a uh, criminal statute, Title 18, United States Code, Section 1028, which provides a two-year sentencing enhancement, essentially, for aggravated identity theft. And uh, the definition in the statute, uh, and I think the legislative history of the statute, uh, suggested that this was really uh, about aggravated identity theft. But the actual plain language simply reads, knowingly transfer, possess, or use without lawful authority a means of investigation of identification of another person during and in relation to certain predicate offenses. Those predicate offenses are any fraud statute, fraud related statute. Uh, also Title 18 USC section 922A6, which relates to false statements in connection with the 
acquisition of a firearm and uh, also immigration, citizenship and nationality related predicate criminal offenses. So at a, at a high level, what's presented to the court in the Dubin case is whether a person commits aggravated identity theft and qualifies therefore for this two year sort of mandatory minimum sentence and enhancement when uh, the offender uses someone else's identifying information in any manner while committing a predicate offense. In particular, the issue before the court comes up in a case involving healthcare fraud um, and the submission of claims uh, to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services um, for services that were not provided, but which claims identified uh, individuals in the claims and therefore made use of uh, someone's name and certain other identifying information in the submission of the claims. Um, what I think is really intention here is, at a, is a general um, belief at the time of the passage of this statute that uh, this was really designed to deal with kinds of aggravated identity theft um, that, uh, and not simply an enhancement to every uh, essentially healthcare fraud uh, case that might be brought. Um, the courts have struggled with the word use in this particular statute at the uh, Court of Appeals level. They've essentially uh, uh, had to um, have tried to find ways to construct this uh, statute and construe the, the plain language of the statute in ways um, to avoid having this uh, two-year statutory mandatory minimum enhancement uh, essentially apply to every single claim that ever gets submitted to the federal government, um, wherein an argument could be made that fraud was had. They've, the cases in the lower courts have sort of split generally into two different camps. One uh, were, limited, were courts that have limited the scope of Section 1028 uh, to bills for services that were not provided, so-called made-up billing cases. Uh, other, other courts have essentially uh, conferred the broadest um, construction of the word use by applying it, uh, applying it to basically any fraudulent uh, submitted uh, claim. Um, these get sort of get referred to as overbilling or the false billing cases. And uh, Dubin is essentially an overbilling case. Um, in, in the case which is, is up before the court on surgery um, uh, from the Fifth Circuit, um, essentially uh, the facts presented were that the defendants in the case were a married couple. They operated a, a uh, uh, they, uh, they operated a, 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 well, excuse me, it was a, a licensed psychologist and his son. He, Dubin uh, operated a psychology practice. His son operated the business side of the operations. Um, they had essentially a Medicare, um, they were a Medicare provider that became involved with an emergency shelter for children. Um, they uh, ostensibly this psychology practice was to perform intake interviews and psycho psychological evaluations for this uh, emergency shelter for children. Um, and to receive Medicaid reimbursement for, the, for these services, 
the practice had to certify whether a licensed psychologist performed the interview and the evaluation. Um, I, in, in fact, what ended up happening or is, is alleged and was uh, um, the basis for the uh, prosecution at trial was uh, the allegation that the Dubins uh, directed that the invoice be submitted at the rate as if a licensed psychologist had performed the services when in fact the services had not been performed by a licensed psychologist. Therefore, the bills were deemed to be inflated. Um, and in October of 2018, a federal jury found uh, the younger Dubin, uh, the son guilty of conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud, aiding and abetting healthcare fraud and aiding and abetting aggravated identity theft Section 1028, the statute at issue here. Um, the lower court heard this in a three-court, uh, a, a three-judge uh, panel, uh, and then also heard it again in rehearing and bonk in 2022. Essentially, the court uh, um, uh, upheld the conviction uh, and and found uh, that the broader meaning of the word use applied. Um, uh, the majority found no textual basis really for concluding that Congress drew a distinction in Section 1028 between the use of identifying information to obtain benefits when no services were provided and the use of identifying information to obtain benefits by inflating the cost of services that were provided. In other words, the court essentially found that anytime you have a false claim submitted to the government or an alleged false claim submitted to the government, which necessarily has inherent in the submission of the claim identifying information of another of a person, um, it would trigger this aggravated identity theft enhancement. Um, there were uh, dissents at the Fifth Circuit, um, and uh, the dissent uh, by Judge uh, Costa in the Fifth Circuit uh, really centered on the practical ramifications. Um, this aggravated identity enhancement has not been widely thought of in the past as applying to every uh, healthcare fraud uh, matter at the criminal level. Level, And so he wrote in dissent that the majority allows every single act of provider payment healthcare fraud involving a real patient to also count as aggravated identity theft. After all, any payment form submitted to Medicare, Medicaid, or an insurer needs identifying information for the patient. So he uh, offered that that a 1028 should require whether the patient consented to the use of identifying information um, and, and therefore wanted to import kind of a theft, uh, a theft requirement here, that there was some actual, they didn't have the right to have the information to begin with, um, rather than um, here where they presumably actually had the right to, to have the information, had the right to submit a claim, but in fact uh, submitted a inflated claim based on the fact that the licensed psychologist had not um, actually done the evaluation, someone else um, not, not so licensed had instead. Um, this brings before the court really a uh, the, the thing that I think in, in Fed stock circles gets discussed all the time, and, and that is uh, what is uh, uh, originalism, what is uh, statutory construction, uh, how do you strictly construe it? And, strictly construe a statute and when should that be. Um, as we know, while uh, there is now a, a Sixth Circuit um, so-called uh, conservative uh, majority on the court, 
how the justices see uh, the construction of statutes and plain reading of statutes uh, is not uniform, even amongst those six, um, let alone amongst the complete court. So uh, we can expect that the court is going to struggle with the practical reality of the breadth of this statute if it's deemed to be to apply basically across the board, as the Fifth Circuit uh, said. At the same time, that's going to be in tension with the fact that if they tr try to construe this somehow more narrowly, they are likely to um, uh, find that uh, find that difficult to do based on the plain uh, language of the statute. Um, the implications from an enforcement standpoint, um, I think, will be significant in insofar as if this statute is applied as the majority in the Fifth Circuit uh, suggested that it was, this is going to add certainly to the leverage that the Department of Justice has in fraud-related cases, uh, raise the stakes, uh, and where the where there are mandatory minimums in place, um, I, I know in the context of other other areas of the law, um, the leverage to uh, obtain pleas and to obtain cooperation is maximized. Um, and how you come down on that issue, and whether that's a good thing as a matter of of policy and and societal norms, is uh, uh, is obviously debated, um, but it's a reality that this statute will become, if if upheld, if the Fifth Circuit decision is upheld, become a means uh, uh, in in every fraud investigation at the federal level uh, to raise the stakes for uh, putative uh, defendants and targets of criminal investigations. Great. Thank you so much for that, John. Um, if I could just ask one question about it, is, has either party argued that, the, or I guess the defendant argued that, uh, that the statute is unconstitutionally vague, um, or has that not been a focus of the arguments or the-, the Well, right, yeah, they, they have not sought, they, they, they've certainly uh, sought uh, to make arguments that it's ambiguous and rule of lenity ought to, ought to apply. Um, there are cases out there where courts have struck to do that. Have, 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 have strived to do that. I think the the um, th there have not been direct attacks on some of the predicates, um, uh, offense questions and definitions. One of the things that, of course, we've seen in um, the armed career uh, offender statute history of that of of the various cases that have gone before the Supreme Court under that statute is the predicate offenses have in in and of themselves have been challenged. Um, and the use of those as, as, as enhancements for that armed career criminal uh, uh, enhancement have been challenged. So we may see, I think that would probably be the next step if this uh, case is upheld and the Fifth Circuit is upheld. If, if in fact, the, the uh, Fifth Circuit is overturned, I think it'll be interesting to see how the court construes the language. Um, and that may take some of the pressure off the attacks on the predicate offenses. But uh, I would I would suggest that the, the next front, um, if 1028 becomes more commonly used, is going to be a tax on the use of these predicates and the definitions therein as being overly broad, as as not being necessarily uh, proven to a jury and therefore uh, unconstitutional. So uh, a, a good question and, and obviously uh, 
probably teed up for future core consideration. Great, thank you, John, again. Um, and we're gonna move then to our, our next panelist, uh, who is Karen Harned, who is the president in Harned Strategies, LLC. Uh, previous to this uh, stint, she served as the executive director for the National Federation of Independent Businesses um, at the Small Business Legal Center, which she, a post she held for 20 years. Uh, prior to that post, she was an attorney in Washington, D.C., specializing in food and drug law, where Attorney Harned represented small and large businesses um, and represented them before Congress and the courts, et cetera. Um, as the executive director of the NFIB, uh, Attorney Harned uh, commented regularly on small business cases, uh, again, in the federal and state courts. And today, Attorney Harned is here to talk about two cases pending before the court involving President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. So, Attorney Harnett, I'll pass over the, uh, the microphone to you. Thanks for having me, Rob, and thanks, everybody, for joining us for um, this program. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I um, also should put a disclaimer together. I currently am Chief Legal Officer for the Job Creators Network. That's one of my um, foundation. That's somebody I'm working with, and we have supported uh, the litigation I'm going to be talking about today. Um, and on February 28th, the Supreme Court is going to hear two cases on the student Biden, President Biden's student debt forgiveness program. Um, as we may all recall from uh, the campaign, Biden had promised to um, address student loans and, and do a forgiveness program. And so um, last August, he announced this program that would allow for um, loans for anybody that made 125,000 or less individually, 250,000 or less as a couple in tax years 2020 and 2021 to receive $10,000 worth of forgiveness on their student loans. These would be for the loans that the federal government holds, which they took over that program, if you might recall, I believe around in 2008. Um, and then um, the second uh, group of folks is Anybody again with those thresholds, you know, 125,000 or less for an individual, 250,000 less for a couple that have received a Pell Grant, they are going to receive um, $20,000 worth of forgiveness. But the the price tag um, is at least $400 billion for this program, um, and the the Biden administration based its authority for doing it through. Um, what's called the HEROES Act. It was a law that was enacted after September 11 attacks. And within it does say that um, when the president declares a national emergency, you know, he can, you know, uh, you know, forget, waive certain, you know, uh, requirements. Um, and it, you know, what we, what the plaintiffs have argued in this is that it was really more intended for military personnel. That was what was envisioned, not not necessarily all people. But that, but the if you do look at the Heroes Act, the language is relatively broad on um, once the president declares a national emergency, what he or she can do. That said, um, the Department of Education, prior to the president's announcement, um, under the last, I'm sorry, under last administration, had specifically looked at whether you could do forgiveness under the student, uh, under HEROES Act um, for student deaths and had a memo that said that they did not. Um, so that's background on, on how we got here. Um, in August or in September, the six states sued the administration saying that this um, 
program would be was unconstitutional, um, that it uh, was arbitrary and capricious, but also that it um, was flying in the face of the president's, uh, or, I mean, I'm sorry, of the uh, statutory construction that, um, you know, the president can't um, take on the role of Congress. The major questions doctrine is what it's known. Um, that was part of the West Virginia versus EPA case that came out at the end of last term. And, and bottom line on that is, you know, if the statute doesn't say expressly that the administration has authority, they can't use it, especially on a program that has significant economic um, uh, uh, impact. And um, the states argue that this program definitely does. Um, the there was a the case that I've been involved with was filed in October, and it concerns two individual plaintiffs, student student loan borrowers who still have their debts. One of them, uh, Ms. Brown, does not. Um, she's still paying her debt, but it was um, commercially obtained, so it is not eligible for forgiveness under the program. Um, Mr. Taylor. Um, he uh, would be eligible for the $10,000 worth of forgiveness, but not the $20,000. And he argues that's problematic because that distinction was made based on the income his parents carried when he was in school, not the income that he is making now, which is significantly lower than the $125,000 threshold. And they both argue that this program is flawed because um, the administration did not go through the proper notice and comment procedures that that Administrative Procedure Act requires, um, they do. And if they had done that, they could envision, you could envision a world in which both of these borrowers received money or received more money than currently is granted. So with the first case, the states, they filed in Missouri. Um, they argue that uh, they base most of their standing on the fact that Missouri has this um, loan program that um, it is a very big loan program the state has been administering. And because the government's uh, student loan forgiveness would forgive so much debt, um, that program would suffer in revenues, $44 million a year, I believe is what they argue. And as a result, that would hurt the state and the programs that other programs that it's trying to support. Um, the administration counters that while they can make adjustments to their budget and this, and also you know, says, they don't even think um, Mohila, that's the name of the, uh, or the acronym, sorry, Missouri Education Opportunity Higher Administration or something like that, sorry. I don't, it's a long acronym that everybody messes up, including me. But that said, um, that that's a separate corporation and not part of the state, so that's their back argument there. Then um, the other states, which include Nebraska, um, uh, Iowa, Kansas, and South Carolina, assert that they have standing because it's gonna reduce their tax revenues. All of these states um, use the associated um, gross income to calculate taxes. And because of the law that's on the books, um, the stu any student debt that's forgiven won't be included in their income and that would reduce revenues. Um, the administration counters on that standing um, that they that's just self-inflicted. And then uh, they also argue that um, uh, uh, that the Biden administration program encouraged borrowers who were not eligible for student debt relief to consolidate their loans. Um, and uh, as a result, the fees that the state agencies would get 
for servicing original loans are going to be reduced. Um, the administration on that point counters that they made it clear um, that borrowers cannot become eligible for consolidating their loans. And that is an interesting point where I'll stop before I get into the private plaintiffs. You know, I'm spending a lot of time on standing because if you recall, when this program was unveiled, that was one of the biggest issues people had. They thought, my goodness, this sounds like a big overreach. But then when they started looking at who could sue, standing became an issue. Um, and so um, so that has that is definitely going to be a focus of the arguments we're going to hear on February 28th. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, especially even moving forward, how the government, how the court reacts to the state's arguments, especially because they've become so active moving, you know, in the past, you know, decade in litigation. Um, and so, yeah, their standing is going to be very interesting to see how the court um, addresses that. Similarly, um, the um, individuals came in and their standing argument actually deals with you know, the procedural issues, the lack of procedure there is, that the Administrative Procedure Act was not followed, that according to the Higher Education Act, you should be going through, they should, the agency should be going through notice and comment and negotiated rulemaking before doing any sort of forgiveness. Um, the administration argues, well, the HEROES, under the HEROES Act, you don't have to go through those procedures. And also um, the plaintiffs in this case, if if they were to, if the program was to be ruled unconstitutional, um, they would get no relief, right? Um, but the plaintiffs in the case argue, look, that's not the analysis. Under Lujan, the analysis is, can you envision a world in which the program might have changed had um, the appropriate processes been followed, had the uh, uh, administration undertaken Administrative Procedures Act? And indeed, I think that the plaintiffs in that case do a good job of saying, um, absolutely. I mean, in fact, the consult loan consolidation issue was something that up until um, I think it was at least the beginning of September, the government was um, actively encouraging people to do. So you could have seen a situation where Myra Brown, for example, would have received forgiveness. And as far as the thresholds, um, the whole procedure argument really does raise the fact that this whole program was done in the dark of night, not even behind closed doors of Congress, but behind, uh, you know, the closed doors of the Department of Education, the White House. And so there really was not um, an opportunity for anybody other than the top, top administrative law, you know, branch lawmakers to even weigh in on this program that's going to cost everyone $400 billion at least. Um, so that is the standing arguments that I think will definitely take up a bunch of time on the 28th. The states are gonna go first and uh, at 10 o'clock. And then once that concludes, the private plaintiffs will go on. Um, the cases were not consolidated. However, the government did um, do one set of briefs for both cases with extra words. And then the, um, the amicus were given the opportunity to file one brief um, in, in both sets of cases. Um, on the, main, on the legal issues, um, once you get past the standing, um, it is, this is really another major questions doctrine case, right? We had it starting with the OSHA vaccine mandate last year, um, and then went to the West Virginia versus EPA, where it got a lot more meat on the bones, I would say. And the argument really is that, you know, 
um, for a program of this size, Congress needed to expressly weigh in. Now, the government says that doesn't, um, oh, and the other big point I think that plaintiffs in both cases make is, look, you know, Congress actually did consider what the president did in this program. Um, and they said no. So that is, um, I think, going to be a bit of a hurdle for the government as they move forward in arguments in this case. But the government says, look, this major questions doesn't apply here because there's not your traditional mismatch. Um, by that, they say the text um, for um, the HEROES Act, and I'm sorry, I did not have it earlier, I have it now, which says, um, you know, uh, a president can declare a national emergency and by waiving or modifying any statutory regulatory provision um, and in uh, in governing the student loan program. And so they think that, you know, that that takes care of the tax issue here. Um, however, you know, again, as uh, the plaintiffs in the case argued, this is a four hundred billion dollar price tag as members of Congress, actually, that were there when the HEROES Act was enacted put in their brief, we never would have envisioned that it would have been used for every person to forgive student loans. This was in direct, I mean, it was, the HEROES Act was passed on both sides by unanimous consent, I think, or or, or maybe they didn't voice, voice, voice vote, but I mean, there were not detractors, or if there were, it was only a handful, um, because this was in response to 9-11. Everybody was, was thinking of the military, even the judge actually in the district court case in Texas had said that, um, look, um, you know, an eighth grade civics class, if they learned about the HEROES Act would not be thinking student debt forgiveness for all Americans. Um, and I think that's right, um, honestly. <laughs> um, so with that said, um, the cases, uh, oh, I should also say, I'm sorry, I got out of order here. How we got here was the Missouri's, uh, for the state's case, the Missouri judge said, um, they did not have standing. It went up to Eighth Circuit. The Eighth Circuit granted the state's motion for preliminary injunction. The Supreme Court declined to overturn that and instead took the case on an expedited basis. Meanwhile, the plaintiff, the private plaintiff's case in Texas, um, they won below. The judge said that the Heroes Act did not authorize the program. The Fifth Circuit declined to stay that ruling or um, uh, hear the case on an expeditious basis. And so it was combined um, by request to the Supreme Court um, with the, you know, to be heard, I guess, separately, but on the same day as um, the state's case. So it'll be really interesting. I think it's gonna be interesting to see what happens once again on standing, but also, you know, how uh, the major questions doctrine, it's gotten a lot of play in a year in, two months and to see what happens with that um, issue moving forward. Great, thanks so much, Karen. Uh, just one, one follow-up question for you uh, concerning the that major questions doctrine. Is there any argument that a $400 billion program is not a major question or is it really just on the text of the HEROES Act and what it requires? Uh, well, we, I think the plaintiffs all argue that. And I think there's been, if you look back at Brown versus Williamson and some other cases, when you're looking that the court has considered in the past in the lead up to what we now know as the major questions doctrine, the price tag does matter. And I think that that is going to raise some eyebrows, especially again, since this court definitely likes Congress to speak first and clearly 
And they actually did on this issue. They looked at this program and they did not pass it. Um, but the president did it administratively. And I think that's going to be um, a weakness for this poor, for this, uh, the government in this case. Thank you. And I think we'll, we'll move to our, our final panelist, and that's uh, Professor Adam Kendu, who is a professor of law and director of intellectual property, information and communications law program at Michigan State University. Uh, Professor Kandub has been on the MSU faculty since 2004, and prior to that, he served as an advisor to the Federal Communications Commission. Um, out of law school, Professor Kandub was uh, an associate at the Washington, D.C. law firm of Jones Day, and before that, served as a law clerk on the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit for Chief Judge J. Clifford Wallace. Professor Kandub's interests uh, focus on law and regulation of communications, the internet, and technology. And that's what he's here to speak to us today about, specifically two cases involving uh, social media platforms, Google and Twitter. And uh, Professor Kandub, I think you're um, uh, it's hot off the presses listening to the arguments in these cases. So why don't you fill us in on what these cases are all about? Right. So um, I think that some of my prepared comments are going to be filtered through one half of the argument that I was able to catch. Um, so, um, you know, after 30 years and almost 30 years since its enactment, um, the court finally will consider Section 230C1 of the Communications Decency Act, which is, of course, the uh, statute that sets forth the basic uh, liability regime for the Internet. Um, the Gonzalez plaintiffs are families of slain victims of Paris, Istanbul, and San Bernardino, a terrorist attacks, and they claim that YouTube's targeted video recommendations motivated the terrorists who murdered their loved ones. Um, Section 230C1 mirrors traditional liability for telegraphs and telephones. It protects internet platforms from liability caused by their user statement. As this very brief, 26 words stating, no provider or user of an interactive computer service that's the statutory term for people like Google, um, shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of information provided by another user or internet, um, uh, and, and, you know, the internet providing content. And so the rule, in, in one hand, is, is really quite simple. You know, if you libel your friend on Facebook, um, Section 230C1 protects Facebook and limits your friend's recourse to suing you. Uh, but if Facebook wrongly wrongs a user with its own speech or action, Section um, 230C1 does not apply. Now, that, of course, is the in theory, um, just looking at the statute, but as the lower courts have, have interpreted this, um, what constitutes platform speech um, is really rather limited. Um, and that, you know, rearranging or reorganizing or all sorts of things that most people would consider um, platforms and actions have come under the uh, C1 um, protective rubric. So, um, Therefore, you know, what this suit presents is whether, you know, the algorithmically generated targeted recommendations on YouTube, you know, would you like this video, um, constitutes information uh, provided by another provider um, or the platform's own speech. If the targeted recommendations are considered YouTube's own speech, then Section 230 provides no legal protection from the suit. If um, the recommendations are information provided by another, then 230 offers protection. Um, Google, of course, argues that its recommendations are merely algorithmic reorganized speech of their users and therefore comes under the protection. The plaintiffs argue that its recommendations are, in fact, its own speech um, and that um, it falls outside of the protection. 
Um, but this suit raises a more fundamental question. Uh, because Gonzalez is the first time the court will examine Section 230C1, um, the court may rule, or, or will at least implicitly in some way, rule on how broadly that provision should be read. Um, while some courts have read the provision correctly, you know, limiting the protection to the um, content, uh, to liability created by the content of third parties, not the platform's own actions. As I said earlier, some lower courts have read it quite broadly. Uh, and numerous federal judges, almost notably uh, Justice Thomas, have recognized um, this unwarranted expansion. Um, his statement in the uh, Malware Bites case, uh, it was a denial of certiorari, um, correctly diagnosed how lower courts have expanded Section 230 protection in you know, absurd ways without textual or statutory basis. Um, so Gonzalez therefore creates um, uh, um, these two questions. We have on one hand, sort of the more specific question, which is, are targeted recommendations speech of YouTube or of the people who are being recommended, the videos that are being recommended? And more fundamentally, how is the Supreme Court going to interpret Section 230 to sort of frame this liability, which um, you know, the, the, the former question will have a rather limited impact. Um, the, um, uh, the, the broader question, which is, of course, I mean, of interest to a lot more people, um, could have a huge impact. Um, so, you know, how, how does Google come out on this? Well, you know, the Gonzalez theory of liability seems outlandish. Um, the plaintiffs claim that YouTube's video, um, video's recommendations led, you know, otherwise peaceful in individuals to view increasingly political, radical, politically radical videos and, and, and made them into terrorists. Um, the Gonzalez plaintiffs, in effect, posit that terrorists you know, would have been you know, mild-mannered Islamic theologians, you know, had not YouTube's recommendations pushed them down a spiral vortex of political and religious radicalization. Um, and uh, now Google, um, you know, wants to avoid even litigating that uh, strained claim of causation. Um, so it looks to Section 230C1 and um, as protection from that suit. And Google argues that algorithmic targeted recommendations are not its speech, but simply reorganize the speech of others. Therefore, 230 bars its claim. Um, you know, and... But Google also, of course, wants to make sure that whatever the court decides about targeted recommendations, the court answers the fundamental question um, about Section 230 C1's scope in a way that it likes. Um, Google wants the sort of broad interpretation that some lower courts have, have embraced um, to include things that you know, really are the platform's own actions, our own speech. Um, you know, the, the, the position that Justice Thomas um, express deep skepticism about um, stay in place. And, you know, as we all know, um, when Google gets worried, armies of lawyers, lobbyists, think tankers, foundation apparatchiks, and academics get going. Um, and, you know, uh, not to be too cynical, but, you know, I, I, I've been <laughs> on the other side for, you know, several years. Um, you know, the list of amici writing to support Google in this, um, you know, does sort of reflect us uh, by, you know, a riparian map of, of big, big tech money flowing through DC um, and the broader sea, and, and the DC swamp and you know, the broader sea of American institutions. So as for the, the um, uh, broader question of C1 scope, Google and, his, and many amici, which are, you know, I think almost 30, um, essentially argue that C1 covers all of the editorial discretion um, of a platform. You know, anything that an internet platform does concerning content on their platform is protected. Um, and, 
you know, what they have, and and in addition to arguing that, that the C1 just protects editorial function or, or editorial discretion, um, and therefore would eliminate any liability that Google would have for targeted recommendations, because that's about speech of, um, that's about speech on its platform. So Google can recommend all the terrorist um, videos at once, um, and it has no liability because recommending, displaying, um, uh, suggesting is a fundamental uh, editorial function, at least how Google would argue it. And they also have a more subtle statutory argument um, that looks to the um, the actual text of the statute, but actually sort of misstates it in a, in a very clever way, um, very successfully, because I think a lot of the lower courts have, have accepted this misstatement. Um, and so what they say is that, you know, section, um, well, as an initial matter, the liability in C1 really involves three parties. There is the platform, there is the statement of another party, and then there's the plaintiff. So in the classic example that we started earlier, your friend libels you, or you libel your friend. Um, there's you, your friend, and Google. You put the content on Google, your friend cannot sue Google, it can only sue you. That's what C1 is meant to protect. Um, but what the courts have done, what Google and the other platforms have been successful to do is say, well, look, um, what this, um, what C1 protects is that um, a plaintiff um, cannot bring action against a platform for liability that involves content of a third party. Well, what if that content of the third party is really the plaintiff? So that if you get kicked off of Google because you're African-American or you're gay or what have you, or you put, put content on Google and, and allege that you've been defrauded through its representations and promises, um, courts have held that C1 protects Google in those situations as well because it involves content of a third party. But that's really not what the statute means or reads. It's really third party it means another person besides the plaintiff. But that's, that reading has been very successful. And so I think we're really going to be looking to the court to see whether they ratify it or whether they'll, they will, as Justice Thomas had, take a more critical eye to this very expansive reading. Um, you know, I, just in reading, looking at half of the argument, I, I, I was just able to catch half of it um, before we started. Um, the court seems, um, uh, while somewhat skeptical of the theory of the plaintiffs, um, they were very interested, I think, in drawing a line between what constitutes Google's own actions, what constitutes its own speech, what constitutes its own decision-making, and what content constitutes the content of a third party. Um, you know, we'll see whether or not they draw that line, you know, how they draw that line or whether they try to avoid it. Okay, so on the other side, um, and again, you know, if you look at the amici, there's was, um, you know, a small band of amici, um, including Senator Cruz, Senator Hawley, um, the Texas Attorney General, um, the Center for Renewing America, where I'm affiliated, and um, I, I also filed my own amicus brief. Um, and, you know, we have been urging, um, you know, a textual approach to, you know, the fundamental um, issue of Section 230 scope, um, you know, 230C1 means what it says. Um, uh, it limits you to, it, it limits Google's protection for claims about, for claims that arise, um, um, involve causes of action um, of, that are contained within third-party content. Um, it doesn't involve disputes between users and the platform. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, we shall see, you know, how we come out on the, or how, you know, those people who are more skeptical of the broad reading of 230, how they come up on the specific question uh, raising Gonzalez about targeted recommendations. Uh, I, I think we're sort of, I, I think people are more, um, uh, uh, you know, Catholic in their views. My personal view is that, and you saw it in the argument, at least the half that I saw, is that we don't really know how these algorithms work. We don't know whether they are truly neutral, whatever that means. We don't know whether they reflect um, uh, YouTube's own personal judgments, political biases, or whether they're simply like a, you know, chronological listing of, 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 Tweets like Twitter used to do, um, and uh, I, you know, I, from uh, my immediate reaction, I, I would certainly hope that the court doesn't rule broadly without having a, a, a clear understanding about how um, these platforms control and manipulate content. Okay, so what about the Gonzalez plaintiffs? How do they come out on the fundamental question of C1 scope? Um, and this is really interesting. Um, it, it the the, the um, I thought this was a big deal. Um, apparently, the um, the justices did not agree. But um, the Gonzalez's plaintiffs' uh, behavior has been very strange. Um, their petition for certiorari sought review of the traditional editorial function interpretation of C1, um, and then. In their merits brief, they changed the question to a more generic approach to the interpretation of C1 that essentially agreed with Google's interpretation. So I found that very strange um, in the sense that both parties are kind of unified in a um, uh, looking at C1 with the potential um, of, of having very, very broad scope, um, um, a very, very broad scope of protection. And then finally, even more oddly, the Google, Google plaintiffs argued in a cert petition involving, uh, as an amicus in a cert petition uh, involving the, the Florida social media law, that section C1 should be read very, very broadly. So they're arguing in their own case for a narrow reading of C1, and yet are arguing for a very broad reading of C1 in an amicus brief in a case in which they have no relationship to. So it, that leads a lot of questions. Um, you know, we'll see how it goes. Um, I, I, I don't want to, I only saw half the argument, so I'm not certain. Um, but, um, you know, certainly, you know, it's all up in the air. I, I think from the discussion that I heard so far, the, the justices seemed um, somewhat confused and a bit uncertain about um, uh, the, um, about the, the, the scope of, of, of C1, but also what was going on, how these algorithms work. So that's it. Thank you, Professor Andu. Um, one, one question for you about these targeted recommendations. It seems to me that those are almost synonymous with the internet. It seems to be part and parcel of social media. And if those were to go away, I can see an argument that it would actually increase censorship or you know be, affect the internet poorly on one side. On the other hand, Google could be incentivized to increase its censorship of content on its platforms, worried about lawsuits against it if it loses immunity. Is that argument being raised? And if so, can it or will it have any effect on how the justices view the legal question? Well, that was certainly raised in the in, in, in the amicus briefs that has always been a favorite argument of the platforms that if we don't have complete liability protection, we'll just go overboard and censor. Um, you know, we'll see whether that would happen or not. I mean, it depends how the liability protections are drawn. Um, with with um on targeted recommendations, um, you know, I I certainly think that uh, you know it depends how they work. You know, it, it, you know, Twitter used to have an old uh, an algorithm that was an algorithm, which is you know the first the the um, first tweeted tweets get on your feed the first. 
Um, that's a neutral algorithm. Um, and I, I think they should have protection for that. It's just a normal way of displaying um, information. But if there are ways of displaying information actually reflect their own judgment, their beliefs, um, could be perceived as, as, as reflecting their own message, um, then they should have liability for it. They're making decisions and, and how we view material. And I don't see why they should be any different than newspapers. Um, so, but I've, I, I, as you can tell, I, I, I have a, um, I have a, I have a, a you know, entrenched position on that, so. All right, thank you. And uh, just a quick programming note: uh, uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna give a brief description of the final case in the argument section. But to our to our attendees, uh, please feel free uh, to use the Q and A function to submit any questions that you may have for Professor Kendu or Attorney Harnett about the cases that they discussed. Um, and we will get to them as soon as uh, I'm done uh, talking about the last case. And that that last case is uh, New York versus New Jersey. Um, it's a, a case that, at least in my mind, hasn't gotten nearly as much attention as the cases we've discussed so far today, uh, partly because it seems to be more regional interest uh, between uh, uh, New York and New Jersey, the states and the, the harbor specifically. It, it's actually an action uh, in the court's original jurisdiction as between two states and confirms uh, concerns the Waterfront Commission contract, Compact, which created a bi-state commission to oversee operations at the Port of New York and New Jersey, uh, which is one of the busiest ports in the world, if not the busiest port. Uh, the commission is run by two commissioners, one appointed by each state, and its authority is rather extensive over employment matters at the harbor. It uh, includes law enforcement authority, licensing and registration of the waterfront workforce, and levying assessments on port employers to support the commission's operations. Um, the compact between the two states was approved by the legislatures and uh, then passed uh, or confirmed or affirmed by Congress quickly in 1953. So it's been a around for a, a long time. In 2018, however, New Jersey passed legislation repealing its authorization of the commission and announcing its intent to withdraw from the compact in favor of putting its state police in charge of oversight of that portion of the harbor within, within its territory. Interestingly, um, Governor Christie, who signed the legislation, had previously vetoed similar legislation, believing that um, unilateral withdrawal from the compact was not allowed. In fact, that's the issue here today and in, in the case today or this week. Um, and the commission itself actually initially filed suit and the district court in New Jersey granted, um, uh, uh, I guess, enjoined the, uh, the uh, enforcement of New Jersey statute and eventually granted summary judgment to the commission. On appeal, however, the Third Circuit overturned, arguing that the suit was barred by statu uh, sovereign immunity. The Supreme Court denied cert, and New Jersey announced its plans at the end of 2021 to move forward with its um, uh, I guess dismantling of the commission. However, New York finally filed suit um, uh, in, in the Supreme Court, uh, asking for a stay, which it received, and the parties have now briefed the merits issues. Um, and that merit issue is relatively simple. It does the Waterfront Commission Compact allow for states to unilaterally withdraw from it. Um, New York, as you can expect, uh, argues it does not, pointing out that the compact provides that amendments and supplements um, may be adopted by the action of the legislature of either state and concurred in by the legislature of the other. Um, that was their initial argument that without um, a, a mutual uh, agreement to, to, to disband the compact, it couldn't be done unless Congress itself withdrew the authorization. 
They've later amended that argument and maybe focused a little bit more on the purpose of the compact, which was to fight organized crime and corruption in that multi-state area, which New York argues still exists. So the purpose of the compact still exists and that belies any unilateral withdrawal. Um, further, they say that the compact should not be read as an ordinary contract, but rather as an act of Congress, more akin to a statute. Um, and that the framers intent of that statute in this case um, was that unilateral withdrawal is uh, impermissible. In fact, the only two ways for the compact to end would be by both states agreeing mutually to withdraw or Congress withdrawing its authorization. New, New Jersey, for its part, uh, relies on basic contract law and argues the court must construe the compact silence on withdrawal um, as a permission for unilateral withdrawal to occur. Uh, this being particularly true because that silence would preserve a state's sovereign authority. Uh, New Jersey's sovereign authority to govern its own territory, which it gave up partially through the compact and absent an express uh, statement that it could, it could not unilaterally take back that authority, uh, it, it, it can do so. Um, New Jersey also, making a more textualist argument, says that the compact's purpose um, really is meaningless other than as viewed through the text and structure of it, which those basic rules of interpretation allow for unilateral withdrawal. Um, two, two interesting points about the amici in the case. The United States has filed a brief supporting New Jersey's position, arguing that unilateral withdrawal is permissible. Um, the commission itself has actually filed a brief supporting New York's position, which is perhaps unsurprising because the only commissioner left is New York's appointed commissioner. And uh, that commissioner claims the authority and the power to file a brief and has done so supporting New York. Argument is set for March 1st. So uh, with that, um, we're gonna welcome any questions that you may have for the panelists uh, on, on the cases. Um, so please use the Q&A function. Uh, 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 on your screen to do so. Uh, in the meantime, though, I'm going to ask either panelists if they would like to chime in uh, with additional thoughts on their own cases or on the other cases that have been discussed so far. Okay. okay no, 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 no comments from either panelists uh, right now, but. Maybe Karen, I can I can ask you a question about those standing arguments. Mm -hmm. um, there has been some discussion. I think Professor Dorf has written an article about standing and arguing that it's impermissible in this case, and perhaps some back and forth about whether um, there's a distinction between standing uh, to assert individual rights on behalf of a third party um, or um, to standing in favor of structural. Um, protections in the Constitution, separation of powers, maybe, uh, and he would deny that there is a, um, uh, I guess, a, uh, an ability to, to, for an individual who is not directly harmed to raise a standing argument using structural provisions rather than freedom of speech or right to bear arms or et cetera. Have you seen any of that developed in the actual briefing or the arguments of the party, um, or has that been a focus at all of the court's decisions below? Um, it really is a bit of focus of the court's decision below. I believe in some of the initial um, briefing by the states, they were just saying as state sovereigns to protect their citizens, they were doing more, more, I would say, that kind of a broad, you know, um, argument. But I feel like as they've moved forward, they've really honed in more on the on the standing issues that 
that where they feel like, you know, they could show um, concrete harm. But I do think the point you raise is a good one in that, you know, this program was very, if I'm being honest, a tricky, tricky to challenge because the government really did a good job of, you know, thinking ahead on the standing issues and how they could, you know, literally buy, I, I mean, I, they must have, you know, bought box litigants out. And the idea, as you had referenced in your earlier question to me, that that could culminate in an executive official really behind closed doors rolling out a $400 billion program just sounds, you know, that that can't be, I, I think, under our constitution. So I feel like this may, you know, it again, I, you know, the the court did take one of the questions on standing. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what they do with that because, I mean, they have watched this, not just this administration, but prior administrations get more and more aggressive in how far they're going to stretch the law, especially in light of the fact that Congress isn't really passing many, right? And so um, I think this is an issue that's going to come up more and more. And um, although it really, in this instance, I feel like both sides have you know, done a good job of showing a concrete injury. Um, this was a program at first that the standing was really, you, you, you were, you got to illegal before you got to who could sue and that, you know, is that going to happen more? And I, I think I'm hopeful that the judges will be more, justices will be mindful of that as they're considering standing in this case, because again, the agencies are going to act with, they're going to take as much power as they can get. So I don't think this is going to be the first time we see this kind of, um, program rolled out where it's, you know, it's unclear who would have standing to show injury. Do you, do you have a sense as to which way the, the court may be leaning, maybe based on previous statements from the justices and other cases, both on the standing issue and then if they do get past it to the merits issue? And it, it, you know, it just seems to, it seems to me like the Missouri the state plaintiffs had a stronger argument there on standing. Um, and if they can get over that hurdle, um, based on West Virginia versus EPA, amongst others, that have a fairly good argument under the major questions doctrine. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually think all the plaintiffs, you know, this me personally, should come out of the standing question well. I mean, the court has been, I think, very generous with standing whenever states sue, right? I mean, I, I just, it's very rare these days, I feel like, where that is an issue that kicks them out. Um, but maybe I'm, I'm missing something there. And then, you know, we have, you know, Kavanaugh and some other administrative law geeks on there. And I think the APA, the case law on that is pretty strong where, you know, the injury is, can you envision, you know, could you envision the program being changed had the agencies gone through the right procedures? And I think here the answer is absolutely yes. So, um, you know, I'm bullish on the whole case. I definitely think on the major questions doctrine, excuse me, the idea, you know, I, I get, I get that the statutory language may be broad, but in context, context, you know, a lot of the liberal justices like to talk about context a lot. I mean, this was done in response to, you know, nine 11 um, military was, you know, all of the, the examples of people that could uh, for which programs could get waived before the national emergency provision referenced military or people serving overseas. So I think, and I think that 
does muddy the waters, you know, and make that plus the $400 billion price tag, plus the fact that Congress has taken a pass on this and literally taken a pass on this program, um, all really weigh in favor of the plaintiffs on major questions. So it'll be interesting, but it'll also be interesting, where will a Kagan be on this, you know, and where where will her, her questions be? I'm, I'm actually very curious to see that um, moving forward because um, she does seem to be a longer term thinker on a lot of these administrative law type cases or just administrative action cases. And, um, and so it'll be interesting to see where she comes out. We did have uh, one question come in about the New York versus New Jersey case. If uh, any of our attendees, participants have others, please feel free to again, use the Q and A function. But the question concerned uh, the role of organized crime uh, in the case. Interestingly, in the, in the briefing, um, New York makes it a point that the commission is still needed because crime and corruption are still out there and rampant within the, the commission, which in some ways is a double-edged sword because it kind of undermines um, the success of the commission, maybe highlights New Jersey's point that a different structure is needed. Now, whether that uh, sways the justices at all in their view of uh, the compact and what it means in the background law, I, I don't know. I, I kind of doubt it. But certainly that's part of the issue here um, and seems to be what New Jersey sees as the issue, having greater direct control over it. I think another part of it that I found interesting was in the injunction briefing, um, there was a point made that whereas previously about 70% of the economic activity happened in the New York side, uh, currently it's more like 90% in the New Jersey side. So that may have a big role in New Jersey's decision-making here because they want to have more authority since most of the economic activity um, is coming in their uh, territory and territorial waters. Um, so certainly the organized crime aspect of it was a, a motivating factor behind it. Um, I think uh, some of the commentary I've seen has uh, specifically referenced the uh, movie On the Waterfront from the 50s. Um, this is about the era when that uh, the movie was released and that was at the forefront and speaks to why Congress probably so quickly passed uh, the commission in the first place in 1953. Okay, well, it looks like uh, we don't have any more uh, questions from the panelists. Um, so I'm going to pass it back to uh, Nate Kaczmarek uh, for a few final notes. Nate. Fast and efficient. I think that was an excellent preview. Uh, our gratitude goes to John, Karen, Adam, and Rob. Uh, we uh, hope to have the benefit of your expertise uh, with us again soon. One programming note this afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern, we have stood up a, a full report from the courthouse steps on this morning's oral argument in Google v. Gonzalez with Eric Jaffe. Uh, please visit our website for the webinar details and registration. Thanks everyone for a great preview. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Telefor, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federal Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.